On this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I speak with Brad Riley, founder and president of I Empathize, about his efforts to eradicate child exploitation here in the U.S. and around the world. You know, it's not just enough to have a passion for something. It's about finding a path and finding people that get that passion to come alive. Welcome to the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, conversations with accomplished professionals from across the nonprofit sector about what they do, why they do it, and how they make change happen. I'm your host, Justin Waddell from NonprofitReady.org and the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. And today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Brad Riley, founder and president of I Empathize. Brad, thank you for being with us today. So good to be here. Awesome. Well, let's start by telling our listeners a little bit more about I Empathize. Well, I Empathize is a Crimes Against Children nonprofit, and we focus on prevention and not just the kids in the spaces where where exploitation is taking place, but also the adults who share those spaces with them and intersect with kids uh, who might be struggling with some form of exploitation. And so our idea of empathy is uh, helping the bystander to step in and to do something when they intersect with a youth who might be going through an exploitive uh, reality in their life. And so uh, to do that, one of our key uh, tools is media. And so we develop uh, documentaries, media curriculum, original journalism, uh, campaigns, and we connect the message of what young people are going through to the adults in those spaces so that they can see it, recognize, respond to it, and intervene. Uh, we also develop media with youth together, where we produce the ideas and the curriculums and the concepts. And the youth that we partner with have come through their own versions and their own stories uh, of, of victimization. And they're 19, 20 years old, so they're able to speak back into younger youth and give advice. And so it's through those strategies then that we build relationships and strategic partnerships to get that message and those programs into the communities that need it the most. It's a very unique approach to this truly expansive issue. How do you find your way to this strategy? Um, A friend of mine was a kit drummer, and he was also in early hip-hop, like Mm -hmm. 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Okay. And he had come off the streets of Queens, Jamaica, Queens, through music, and started a program that was getting kids off the streets. Basically, we get them into recording studios, and like a diversion from all the other challenges they were facing by living on the streets. And so he... um, he lassoed me in to be a music mentor, which had happened for me. So then I was mm-hmm. like, well, sure, I'll do that. Yeah, of course. So gang members changed my life. I mean, that's the hmm. truth. It was these guys that I interacted with when I was 21 years old. Yeah. And uh, once I saw that music and the arts and the things that I was good at could actually change people's lives mm-hmm. in a very specific way, not just as art changes people by itself, mm-hmm. but really a targeted demographic and message. And that became what we do. Okay. So you have this passion in music. You realize that you're passionate about applying it in other ways and applying mm-hmm. these skills in other ways to the humanitarian space and human rights. How did you ultimately find your way to I Empathize and its mission? Well, it, it begins with those same young people in my 20s that I was connecting with who were 
upstreaming me. You know, I was the one supposed to be mentoring them. And of mm -hmm. course it was the interaction with them that was changing me. And so that created a context of what I wanted to be able to do as much as possible and with as much of my time as possible. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a friend of mine um, who, who said, Brad, I know, and this was before we used the terms human trafficking hardly at all, you know, um, but he says, I've, I've, I know that you're passionate about, you know, th this issue. And I've got a friend of mine who's launching a nonprofit. He's a real innovator. I think you guys are like, you know, uh, separated at birth. You need to know each other. And his name is Rob Morris, started a, a group called Love 146. And uh, I was in a transition at that time to where I was ready to go launch this thing. And so I just saddled up next to Rob and we had months and months of idea exchanges. He said, come with me on a trip and I want to show you some of our partners. And this was in Southeast Asia. And there were several things that happened on that trip but in particular, there was an area that we went to that they were doing some investigations in about young boys uh, being sexually exploited um, through sexual tourism. And so he said, I'm going to take you through this area and tell you about what we're up to here. And I came back from that trip and I had met some incredible local advocates that they're the, they're the coolest and most incredible superheroes that no one's ever met. Just working in a neighborhood that no one would work in. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's their neighborhood. And I saw them stepping out because there were a few things that were happening that were empowering them. And, and Rob's group was empowering them with the tools they needed to be successful. And I came back from that trip going, that's really what I need. You know, the, the issues of human trafficking and human exploitation, uh, you know, they're, they're criminal problems. So, of course, we want law enforcement and policy and legislation to address it. But they're cultural problems first. So it has to be a cultural response and it has to be localized. And no one can come in and fix someone else's problem for them. But you can partner and you can look at the problem together. And two minds trying to solve a problem are better than one. But it's this person's problem. It's not mine to solve, but it's mine to help. And so it was that idea of saying, if we can just give you the tools and if we can empower you with the things you need to address the issues that are very real and relevant to you because of your proximity to that issue or the people that it's affecting or yourself, then, then that to me was going to be the path that we would take. Mm -hmm. And those were my big takeaways. And I spent about a year just kind of undoing myself, trying to reboot and say, how can we approach this in a way that isn't about myself or isn't about, you know, the media or isn't about, you know, the nonprofit, but it's really about, you know, being a part of a real solution. And, you know, the nonprofit's just a vehicle mm -hmm. to get those answers developed with the people mm -hmm. that need it the most. This is such a huge and expansive issue. How did you decide where to focus first in terms of regions and demographics? Yeah. You know, to be honest, it was relationships. And so the more that I got connected to people who uh, were currently entrenched in the issue, <clears throat> and they were looking at me saying, you want to help? Here's where I need some help. And so it was really those relationships. So our first partnerships began out of a group in Cambodia called Chad Dai, which in Khmer means linking arms or hands. And it's a Londoner 
and her and her husband, very successful business people in London, uh, moved to Cambodia for their own reasons and became passionate about this issue because it was surrounding them while they were working. And so um, I said, what's your next project? How can I help? And it was uh, a guy named Yang who was around 40 years old who had some friends who thought they were giving their kids up to a better life and realized later they were being trafficked, never saw uh, the kids again. That story so gripped him that he just said, what can I do? And all he had was a scooter. And Helen, she was like, runs chap die. She says, bro, we're trying to get a flip chart built so that he can take this message to villages. And we've been working as NGOs to bring these village leaders in to the nearest city and no one will come because we're just not doing it culturally right. And so Yang says, let me take this over for you. I'll go to the villages and I'll bring this message and help them protect their kids and show them the tactics of traffickers. And uh, there was one particular area where there were about 50 cases of, of international men coming in uh, in a beach community, taking advantage and victimizing over 50 kids. And uh, Yang went in with his flip charts and educated the villagers, partnered with some local uh, other uh, outreaches that had relationships with, with the people in the area. And within a year, those men were arrested prosecuted and there were zero cases it didn't even get displaced to another neighborhood it, it, the problem got solved and it was one guy with one scooter one flip chart and so we said well we're going to help fund that so you know our first campaign was telling everybody we need to raise money for these flip charts mm -hmm. and a little simple tool like that made a profound impact mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing we have to remember is the smallest things that make the biggest difference sometimes big doors open on small hinges Mm -hmm. And you got to pay attention to the small things. And those ideas and watching Yang even do what he did, which I call him the scooter hero, um, you know, it, it, it inspired me to come back and, and work with what I call now trucker heroes, which is this is a great example of how, how one little thing inspired a big thing that, that is making a huge impact. So our first U.S. project, we'd, we'd, we'd worked in Southeast Asia, multiple countries, we did a project uh, with uh, Russian orphans aging out of their orphanages. Uh, and at 16, 17, 18 years old, traffickers waiting to offer them false job opportunities. So we had done a few projects across the globe, but we knew we needed to come home and focus on the U.S. And our first opportunity was a, a volunteer of our organization, I, I empathize. Uh, she was a NCAA um, starting basketball player for Hawaii, incredible leader, you know, real tenacious, fierce lady. Um, and she goes, you know, I, I can't stand that this issue's happening. And we have this idea. We, my mom and I have thought about this. We want to reach out to the trucking industry. And at first I even went, I bought into the stereotype and I said, yeah, it's, it's a real problem at truck lots. And, you know, I'm sure that there's an issue of, of with buyers uh, in commercial sex as, as truck drivers. She goes, yeah, 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 but that's not why we want to do it. And I said, well, tell me why you want to do it. She goes, well, because there's three million of these drivers on the road between urban and rural and cross-country drivers, and they're the eyes and our ears of our highway. What if we taught them how to recognize amber alerts and missing kids and signs of trafficking? What if we could, could work with businesses to help train their employees so that they would recognize and respond to this when they see it going down the nation's roadways? And immediately I was like, 
It's a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. It's so simple. And it was Yang. It was really what Yang was doing, yeah. recycled. Well, now we've trained close to 200,000 drivers. We wow. have all the major players in the trucking industry on board. Mm-hmm. And we have rescues on the books. And it's one of the fastest growing demographics calling the Polaris Project National Anti-Trafficking uh, Hotline. And so it's working. And it's having success. And it started with, you know, Yang. Mm-hmm. As a scooter hero, and now I've got these everyday trucker heroes saving mm-hmm. kids' lives mm-hmm. in the normal rhythms of their everyday life. That's great. Now, when you're approaching an initiative like this, how do you, as a leader of this organization, ensure sustainability? It's an awesome idea. You have that spark as you're scaling this, expanding to more and more truckers mm-hmm. in this situation. Mm-hmm. What are you putting in place to make sure that lasts? Well, as a nonprofit, we want to diversify our income streams so that if one big angel donor investor goes away, you know, that it doesn't all fall apart. Mm-hmm. And so really it, it's, it's about um, diversifying the way that you bring in uh, funding for these kinds of things. And with the economy, the way it was, I mean, it's bouncing back, but the way it was, you had to be super creative at that and you had to really get people's attention. And so innovation is key. You had to be relevant and connected uh, to the mission in a way that makes sense to everybody and works. Once that you can show it works and you connect it to other people who are passionate. So the trucking program is being paid by the trucking industry. Hmm. I'm not looking to pay. Not only do I, I don't ask a trucker to go into a school and work with me with our youth programs at schools. And I don't ask a teacher to go to the truck lot. Um, and in the same way, I, I don't ask people who are passionate about getting um, anti-exploitation materials into schools to pay for a trucking outreach. Mm-hmm. And so it's really attaching the people who care about those spaces to the problems that are happening within their spaces, mm-hmm. helping them see that, helping them empathize, and then the support and funding usually comes next. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that because of the competition for that funding, there's this need to be creative. Mm-hmm. And I feel like oftentimes in the nonprofit sector, that leads to a lot of knee-jerk reactions with mm-hmm. regards to innovation and coming out with the next brand new shiny object. And that's not always the best thing. How do you and your organization make sure that you're truly innovating and not just sprinting off the bricks with a brand new idea? Yeah. Well, because we're just telling people stories And when we can help people see the cause and effect, the push factor, and it's told through the people that it's happening to, I don't have to have a new shiny gimmick or anything. Mm -hmm. I just have to tell that story well and with dignity Mm -hmm. and and, and in a way that evokes empathy. Mm -hmm. And if I can tick those boxes and, and, and do it in a way that connects to humanity in a way that's very relevant to each of us, and bridge the gap between the person who's the bystander and the sympathizer and bridge that gap and get them to step over into that world for a moment, usually that that one time they cross over just opens up. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's all real stories. I don't, I don't need a gimmick. Mm-hmm. But I need to be relevant. Right. In every one of your programs, it seems like there's very heavy immersion. Heavy on immersion. On behalf yes. of your team. Uh, how many programs do you have running at any one time? And how do you balance the responsibilities of your team amongst those. Yeah. Our team, we're a small team. Mm-hmm. How many? So, so there's six of us full time. Okay. And so we rely, we are relegated to collaboration. 
we like being a small team. Um, and so we don't do a project unless we know that we have a way to distribute uh, the materials and the programs uh, built into that. And so our collaborations look for ways to make that happen. So that allows our team to stay small. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, with log jams, we only have a capacity for, for so much work. But, you know, it's not like we are producing our human rights media campaigns all completely within our team. This is another way that people can give back. So I have lots of media partners who are doing multiple projects throughout the year, but they're giving me X amount of time each year going, Brad, tell me the project you want. So we're building teams around people mm -hmm. who are great at something, who care about an issue, but they're partnering with us with that skill set mm -hmm. and just volunteering a bit of that time to make it happen. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens with our website. We don't pay for our website. That's a web company who says, I want to fight this issue with what I do. So I'm going to build your website for mm -hmm. you. A lot of nonprofits dream of that situation of having this like outsourced pro bono that you can always turn yeah. to, but a lot face capacity issues in terms of yeah. actually administering those free pro bono resources yeah. and are often prevented from ever engaging them right. because their individuals just don't have the capacity to handle them. Yeah. How do you handle that? How do you balance the use of pro bono People need to flip team? You got to flip the script on that because- you're doing the work that you're that you're hoping to get others to help you with and so it's it's it yes it's hard to turn the ship once you're in that model mm -hmm. but we didn't get into that model to begin with we started with a model that was about giving those things away and not expanding until those partnerships were there mm -hmm. so the amount of work you're still doing the same amount of work you're just mobilizing people and empowering people so yeah we want to empower kids to be safe from exploitation, but we also want to empower the adults who share the spaces with those kids. Mm -hmm. But we also want to empower the adults who can provide a tool or a skill that could help the kid in that space. And so when that becomes the way you communicate your mission and your models built around that and relegated to that, then you move forward based on going after those partnerships. So our team mm -hmm. spends a lot of time building those collaborations and connecting to those. Mm -hmm. What qualities do you look for in one of your team members? to be able to really excel in this environment? Well, I, they need, they need, you know, to be good at what they do. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, some people just come to you over time and they emerge. Most of our team members, have, I don't hire. I don't go out and, and, and put a, you know, a job search out. Mm -hmm. I have usually been a part of their life in some way, shape, or form. And most of our team members came through an internship with us. Mm -hmm. Um, even like our operations and donor development person, you know, went through a, a human rights master's degree and had an undergrad in business and, and saw that we were kind of a different, uh, new breed of nonprofit mm -hmm. and said, Hey, I, I want to come and, and intern. And so it wasn't just like, you know, the sophomore at CU who was interning, you know, it's, it's higher level individuals who are, who are really down the path of where they're going in life. And, and we've been able to attract those kind of people. And so he came around for a few months and then the next, you know, we can't let you go, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> stay. Interesting. Now in small team environments like this, you know, there can frequently be the danger of burnout. Everyone is going to be so loyal to the mission. They're so collaborative. They all want to do right by each other. Mm -hmm. How do you as the leader of this organization, make sure that all of your employees 
stay accountable to themselves as mm -hmm. well. It's a tough one, and you're exactly right. And especially with the way we do nonprofit work, because we're not a nine to five office. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're always on the go, always moving, lots of things happening. And so you got to be agile and mobile and it's a certain personality to really fit and mm -hmm. make it work. And if you're not that personality, it, it doesn't last long. Mm -hmm. And I know some groups are okay with that. It's, it's all about recycling people, right. you know, Churn and, burn. <laughs> and, and we don't want to be a part of that, but unfortunately it happens. And it happens to us as an organization where, mm -hmm. you know, people have, some people give you a moment of their life. Some people give you a season mm -hmm. and some people, you, you know, you spend a lifetime with. And I think for me as a leader, I try to ping that in a person as quickly as I can. Is this person, are they going to give me a burst here? And then I don't try to put any other expectations on them on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, so that they always feel like they're being fed and doing what they want to do. But there's always an escape route. We always have a way to exit. And so we can revisit those kinds of things. And, and sometimes you work together with someone to figure out if you can work with them. Mm -hmm. Other times it's, you know, should we keep working together? And, and so I try to just keep the communication lines as open as possible. We have a very much, you know, an approachable culture within our group and our team. We all speak into each other's projects. And so with that culture, we kind of talk these kinds of things out mm -hmm. as well. But it is a challenge. And our team experiences the brink of burnout, I think. You know, it, it spikes for us on a regular basis. And then we all kind of have to watch each other, mm -hmm. talk each other down. Is that an expectation that you explicitly set when someone's being hired in terms of how your culture is going to work? Oh, we for sure do. Mm -hmm. And that's why we like that people getting a vibe for it mm -hmm. for a while. So sometimes they volunteer with us for a season mm -hmm. or they move into an internship or we give them one role, kind of test them out. And it's not just to see if they're good at what they do. It's how, can they get the culture of what we're up to? Mm -hmm. And and we found that a lot of people don't. It's a different kind of deal. And the way we function and operate, um, you know, some people just need a different kind of work environment. Right. That's and not what we do. can't have hurt though. feelings about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Amen. And, and let go of that, you know, yeah. and, and appreciate the moments you get with people and don't mm -hmm. be mad at them and pissed at them that you didn't get, you know, a five-year window. Mm -hmm. Now, from a strategic, from a strategy standpoint, you know, I have a, I have core positions that I can't lose. Mm -hmm. And if I lose one of those, you know, it's, it's, it's going to create a, an enormous gap uh, mm -hmm. in our model. So you've gone from, you know, mixing in the studio and yeah. being on the road with a band to leading the international operations of an organization. Yeah. But what were some of the key learning experiences in that transition or did it just all come to you? Yeah, it goes back to surrounding myself with really smart people mm -hmm. and people who are, you know, better at things than I am. And not just from a team standpoint or a partner standpoint, but from advisors, you know, people who are speaking into mm -hmm. our success. Mm -hmm. And so I think by the time I started, I empathize. I had learned a whole lot of what I wasn't good at <laughs> over time. Cause I started mm -hmm. it in my mid thirties, you know, and, uh, and I'd also kind of l lost all of the need to, uh, you know, have my self esteem built around what I did and really make it, what it needed to be and, and, and me take a different role than, than I would have as a performer, as a musician or mm -hmm. whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Has Iamplify's direction changed much since it was first founded? In its essence, it's it's the same. Mm-hmm. Why we're doing it, what we're doing, what we, how we care, but our methodology has grown and evolved and gotten better. Um, the way we approach things has just gotten better. You know, our strategies have gotten stronger. So, you know, we're just doing we're doing a better job at the things that we dreamed about years ago, mm-hmm. and it took us a little time to. To yeah. grow to that place. How do you structure your strategic planning? Is that three years, five years? We it depends on the project and the urgency of it. That's the one thing we love about what what we are as a small team is we are agile and mm-hmm. we're, we can we can kind of move and morph to a a, um, a, a, a situation and adapt to it. Mm-hmm. So you know, like we have some, we don't try to plan out more than three years. Uh, we we may have an essence of five, seven years in, in, in a sense of that, what that's going to be. But, you know, we, we try to latch on to some great projects. Some of those are two, three months at a time and, and, and they're, and they're cycling through. And then we have other projects that are very long-term and they're scaffolds. So here's, here's development stage. But once development stage is done and we release the program, then there's usually one, two, three years of, of growing that program and getting it to, uh, you know, different phases to, to make it, to, to strengthen its impact, to make the impact bigger. Mm-hmm. I like it. Interesting. Where is I Empathize going next? We are 100% focused on diversifying our catalog and our material and content mm-hmm. for youth. So we are a Crimes Against Children nonprofit. Anything we can do to help kids being groomed into criminal activity or crimes being committed against them. We're continuing to work on that. So foster care systems are a big passion of ours. Mm-hmm. Gang diversion, obviously, based on my story, is a big passion. Um, and so we're, we're working on all of those within Los Angeles and within Denver, and we're taking those cities and partnerships and creating materials then that multiple cities can use all across the United States. But we're incubating them on a very local level where, mm-hmm. our, where our teams are present. Um, and so you'll start to see, uh, our catalog grow, not just in content and subject matter for youth who are navigating life in difficult scenarios, but we also want to diversify the platforms and the way that we distribute the material and using the same material, but getting it out 20 different ways. Mm-hmm. I like it. I empathize as hungry. Driven. <laughs> what do you say to someone who's equally as hungry to approach the nonprofit sector and considering entering for the first time? Maybe they're in the private sector, want to explore what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're in the nonprofit sector now and aren't sure if it's the right thing for them. Yeah. What would you say to these people? I think if you're exploring it for the first time, it's like treat it like, you know, ice thickening and step out one, one step at a time. And as long as it holds you, keep going. Mm-hmm. If you feel it start to get a little shaky for you, settle down a little bit, back off, maybe go forward, but go feel it out. Mm-hmm. Volunteer, get connected to something, a, a cause that you care about and look at best practices and find a group that's doing a really good job of addressing that thing you care about. And then figure out a way you can you can support it and get involved with it. Um, and so uh, from that, then I think you build relationships. And then you start talking to the people, uh, those new relationships, and they start advising you. You start, they start trusting you. They start, you know, they you either work yourself into a role or they start recommending you for a role. Mm-hmm. But it's really about getting into the space where it's happening and connecting to a cause you really care about and a, and a model that, that, 
that you you can support. I think we're at the end of our time now. Is there <laughs> yeah. anything that you'd like to uh, leave our audience with? Any sage words of wisdom? You know, what we've been talking about today is is you know it's not just enough to have a passion. It's to, for something. It, it's about finding a path and finding people that get that passion to come alive and finding people with a common passion. And then sometimes you find people with a passion of a different path than you, but finding a common path with people that you can do it with. Mm -hmm. And, and once you can get that atmosphere going, maybe you get paid to do it. Maybe you don't, but do it. You know, maybe you work another job and this is what you do in your spare time, but do it, you know, mm -hmm. do that, go find that passion, go find those people and get it together and do it. Mm -hmm. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Brad Riley. Brad, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And while you're there, we would greatly appreciate it if you left us an honest rating and review. Finally, be sure to connect with us at nonprofitready.org, which offers more than 300 online learning resources to help you develop your career and realize your potential, all 100% free. The Nonprofit Ready Podcast is a production of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. I want to thank our executive producer, Alec Green, our editorial director, Jeanette Lamb, our sound producer, Trung Ngo, and most importantly, you, for helping us to build the Nonprofit Ready community. Find out more about all of the capacity-building programs of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation at csodfoundation.org.